0: come this Lord's Day to continue in our study, the God of all comforts. I believe we're at sermon number 18 in the series. If you recall, we've spoken of how God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because Christ has obtained a better priesthood, He's the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises. In Hebrews 9, the writer takes up the question, where is the priest's work done? Where is the sacrifice presented to God for the propitiation of our sins? Where is satisfaction made unto God? Hebrews outlines the purpose of the tabernacle in the Old Covenant. The Aaronic priests practice their services there as pictures foretelling the true services which Christ now performs as our great high priest. And as you know, a priest is a person who goes between God and man, representing man to God, representing God to man, and offers up sacrifices on behalf of his people unto God. Through the veil, inside the Holy of Holies, There was the Ark of the Covenant and atop it the golden mercy seat in Cherubim where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled in the presence of God's glory. At the mercy seat, the animal blood was for the appeasement of God's wrath for the sins of the people. That was where mercy for sins was found. In that man-made tabernacle upon that mercy seat was where the priest presented the blood of atonement for the people's sin. But the writer of Hebrews points out the deficiency of the old tabernacle system because the people could never enter that holiest place in the presence of God's glory and because the priests were barred except for once a year and because they were required to bring the blood of atonement each time, the Holy Ghost thereby signified that the way into the holiest place had not yet been made manifest in the old tabernacle. The old tabernacle and its rules and its restricted access served as a reminder of abiding sin in the people and of the priest's inability to finally atone for sin. The sacrifices he made had to be repeated in perpetuity. Yet man's sins were never truly taken away. All these physical rituals and services and offerings were meant to point us to the perfect priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is now made our great high priest of good things to come, of a better covenant, with better promises. And He performs His priestly duties in a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures or pictures of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Because of Christ's priestly work in the tabernacle in glory, which is in the presence of the throne of God, now His people are invited to come in behind the veil where He is. Having been forever perfected by His sacrifice for our sin, there is now no remembrance of our sin against us anymore, and we are made fit to come boldly, into the holiest place by the blood of Jesus. Indeed, we come by a new and living way, which Christ our high priest has consecrated for us, through the veil, which is Christ's sacrificial body. The veil in the old tabernacle kept God's people out. Christ's body torn for us on the cross now beckons us to enter into the holiest place, into the glory of God. We're no longer kept out by curtains and smoke. As before, when the true way in had not yet been provided, now we are welcomed by the body of Jesus and His blood to enter unto our God without stain or fear. What a comfort God has given to us by Jesus Christ as our high priest for the liberty to go where poor lost men are barred. We have a better tabernacle that welcomes us by Christ's sacrifice that has cleansed us. All this was pictured at the time of Christ's death at Calvary. When his sacrifice was completed, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The way was cleared for God's people to enter into the holiest of holies by means of the sacrifice of Jesus, which takes away our sins. Because the veil was rent at Calvary, his people, for whom he made the final offering for sin, that really took it away, for good, are welcome to enter behind the veil to be with Jesus in the presence of the glory of our satisfied God. So this Lord's Day we come to almost the ultimate level of rejoicing and of happiness that we can find in this great book, the book of Hebrews, and the comfort that God gives us in Christ as our high priest is more completely wrought out. And that is this fact that we are redeemed by Christ's blood. We come to this crucial text showing what it meant for Jesus to be appointed by the oath of God to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And all of this time we have spent developing as Hebrews would want us to. The superiority of Christ's priesthood as opposed to the old priesthood. Superiority of the tabernacle where Christ performs His duties as opposed to the old tabernacle. The superiority of the covenant that Christ mediates between God and man versus the covenant of works, the Mosaic covenant that Aaron mediated. The superiority of The sacrifice has been touched on that Christ offered Himself, it says. But now we come to the nub of the matter and what made Christ's sacrifice so superior, so far above superior to that that had gone before. In Hebrews 9, at verse 11, we read, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. This is a pivotal verse in all of Scripture that Christ, being a better priest and presenting to God in the heavenly tabernacle, the sacrifice that He made of Himself. It now says that by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now here is a marvelous and astounding truth. You see, it says that He has a better sacrifice than the animal sacrifices. I'm going to explain why it's better, a verse or two later. A better sacrifice and richer blood a blood that is far superior to that of animals, but rather the blood of Christ, His own blood. And not only that, but that He only enters once with His blood and not every year like the Old Testament priests did. And all these things are significant differences, which He works out in the text. Notice this reference to a better sacrifice and richer blood. Christ's ministry as the great high priest, the ultimate expression of it is that He laid down His own life as a sacrifice for His people and that He then enters into this glorious heavenly tabernacle to present to God at the mercy seat His blood, not the blood of animals. His blood not the blood of animals. You remember the song we like to sing, but Christ the heavenly Lamb took all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. You see, Christ's death has already been mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And even there is one mention of the blood of Christ in Hebrews 2, but it refers to The fact that when He was incarnate, when He became incarnate in our humanity, even though He is God of very God, He took on Himself human flesh and blood. It says He took on Himself flesh and blood like ours. And now, all these chapters later, it says that He sacrificed His blood and He entered into the holy place in glory by His own blood. And then it says this, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He only went in once with His own blood, for He had but one life to give. You know, all the animal sacrifices, once they were killed and the blood had been sprinkled on the mercy seat, they were all used up. They were taken outside the camp and burnt. There was no more good in them. Not so the body and blood of Christ. While He only had one death that He could suffer in our humanity... Yet by that dying, He shed His precious blood and thereby He obtained, it says, eternal redemption for us. This is the astounding result of this one-time sacrifice upon which Christ enters into the holiest place in glory. By His blood, the consequence is having obtained eternal redemption for us. Notice it says having. This is an already accomplished thing, you see. When he shed his precious blood, he obtained, at that point, eternal redemption for all of his people. Now people might quibble about, well, yes, but you have to receive it by faith. Yes, you do. But the act of the sacrifice was towards God, you see, on our behalf, on the behalf of all the people whom God would rescue by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus died and shed His precious blood and presented that before the throne of God. Why? Because He had obtained by that act eternal redemption for us. Notice that it's eternal. It never fades away. It never gets canceled. It never runs out nothing you can do can negate the redemption that Christ has obtained for us. It's an everlasting thing. It's not just once every year, you see. It's not from sin to sin where another sacrifice has to be made. No, Christ died once for the sins of His people, obtained an eternal redemption for us, and presented that blood before God in the holiest place, to make an atonement for us, to appease the righteous wrath of God as a propitiation for our sins. And we lay hold on that by faith, don't we? That's what Paul teaches us in Romans 3. It's a propitiation by His blood received by faith. Everyone that calls on the Lord and pleads to be saved, rescued from their sins, rescued from judgment, must do so. By laying hold of the sacrifice of Jesus and appropriating that precious blood by which He obtained eternal redemption for us, and when we do that, we find out, oh, He obtained that redemption for us before any of us were even born, didn't He? What a great plan of redemption is our Savior's and our God's! But notice that redemption—the word redemption. In this text means a price paid to set us free, a price to purchase us from some terrible judgment, catastrophe condition, etc. It's the price that people used to free a slave from his master by paying out his debt or paying off his value so that the man might be set free. It's a price to be paid, redemption. We say that we redeem things in many ways, but that's one of the principal ways in which the word is used in the Scriptures to redeem the Lord's people by the sacrifice of Jesus in our place to satisfy our debt. And what was our debt? Our great sin. Our great rebellion against God. The judgment and the wrath that we deserved and that were promised us under the curse of the law. The Lord Jesus, by His one time dying, Obtained an eternal redemption. A price paid. A cost borne too. You see, it might be easy for you to redeem a slave. You might have plenty of money to do that. But here's a redemption that costs the life of the Redeemer. The Lord Jesus had to die in our place. And so He rescues His people at great cost to Himself, doesn't He? At great cost to Himself. But then notice that the writer of Hebrews continues on with an argument made by comparison between the blood of the animals and the blood of Christ. For if, verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. He's merely reciting what the Jewish believers would already know about the Old Testament law, that if you became unclean, By touching some dead body, or by any of a number of ways, or if you were unclean because of some sin that you had committed, why then there had to be the sprinkling of the blood of an animal sacrifice and the ashes of a burnt offered heifer sprinkled upon you, upon the altar, upon the curtain of the tabernacle, and that would set apart, that would purify You in the flesh, that is, your flesh would be purified. The Old Testament sacrifices only acted as to the externals, you see. The physical, the temporal. They never could make the guilty conscience clear of sin, could they? So then the writer says, how much more, you see, he's going to contrast dead animals, which aren't that valuable in the scheme of things, to the death of Christ, who's a unique, precious, incarnate Son of God. His sacrifice is eternally and infinitely more valuable and more powerful than any of the sacrifices made under the old system. You see, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, Offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You remember the animals had to be perfect, physically perfect. They had to be spotless, without blemish. You couldn't offer up an animal that had a broken leg or was missing an ear or had some other wound or gash or was in poor health or starved to death. And when people did that, God took offense at it, you remember. He said He wouldn't accept them. They gave Him the worst offerings. But Christ is the best offering. He's the best offering given not by us, but by God His Father Himself. He spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. He is the ultimate sacrifice of infinite value. Christ you see who through the eternal spirit offered himself how much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God now notice the blood of Christ the one who is God the son the scriptures make it clear that the Lord Jesus is God of very God he's the second person of the Trinity he's fully equal with God and the Holy Ghost He is from everlasting to everlasting. He was never created. John makes it clear in John chapter 1 at the beginning that He is God. He is God. He's God the Son, incarnate in our humanity with human flesh and human blood. The Lord Jesus, in His great condescension and love for His people, took on to His deity our humanity. He is one person of the Trinity, and yet He has two natures. He has His divine nature, and He has His human or earthly nature. And neither one of these natures takes away from the other. They're additive, but He has a perfect human nature, one without sin. And so He's perfect in all His ways, in His humanity. He's perfect. What did it say? He offered Himself without spot to God. And therefore, He makes a perfect sacrifice of Himself to God for us. Notice it says He offered Himself. This was a voluntary thing. There are some false teachers who claim that Christ being put to death for the sins of His people, is child abuse, the only thing was He was a grown man and He was perfectly obedient to His Father's will and He loved His people unto the death. And He voluntarily laid down His life, for this was the right that the Father had given Him, He told His enemies in John chapter 10, the right He had given Him to lay down His life of His own free will. And so both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are all complicit in the sacrifice of Jesus because the Scriptures tell us, you see, here that He did this, how? through the eternal Spirit. And of course, in other texts, we know that He did it at the command and at the desire and will of His Father. In Romans 8, it tells us that He that spared not His own Son, that is the Father, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? It's a verse that points out that the Father offered up the Son. He provided the Lamb unto Himself just like. Abraham had told his son, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And in that story, many centuries before, a lamb was found to take the place of little Isaac. But Abraham knew that wasn't the end of it at all. That one day God would provide of himself a lamb to take away the sin of his people. And that's why Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced to see it and was glad because there the debt would finally be paid and the redemption of poor sinners would finally be fulfilled. And it's fulfilled by Christ through the Holy Ghost, as it says, offering up Himself without spot, without blemish, without sin in His own person to God. So this is the value of the blood of Christ. He makes a perfect sacrifice of Himself to God for us because He is a sinless, perfect man as well as being in His person, deity, God of very God. So this is a work of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Trinity intimately involved in our redemption in perfect agreement, working Each of them towards the saving of His people. You remember the Puritans used to say, the Father thought it. He conceived of the plan of redemption. The Son bought it. He paid the price for it on Calvary's tree. And the Spirit wrought it. That is, He wrought these things in our hearts to convert us to believe on the Body and Blood of Christ as our sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed Himself In the power of the Holy Ghost, the divine person of the Son died in His human nature for us. Now, we know God never dies. And the divine nature of Christ did not die. But in His person, you see, His human nature died and then was raised again in power and glory. God never dies, but the God-man did die for us. You see, part of the great value of the blood of Jesus is its purity, His sinlessness, His infinite love for the ones He dies to save, and His obedience to God in His human nature, and that it is the blood of the human nature taken on by God the Son. And therefore, it is approved by the Holy Ghost and received by the Father. There can be no more valuable sacrifice for sin than that made by Christ. Why? Because there is only one Christ. There can only be one Christ. And our Lord Jesus made that sacrifice in the right time and the right place to save us. How much more shall Christ's blood purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, if the blood of animals could make people ceremonially clean, if it could cleanse by the rule of the law their outward flesh, if it could temporally work a satisfaction for God that the wrath might be withheld from them at that time and place, how much more shall Christ's blood purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, this text is interesting because you see, Hebrews already taught that the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant could never cleanse the guilty conscience of sin. You remember it says that a little earlier on in the book, that the animal sacrifices could never cleanse the guilty conscience of sin. And we know why that is, because they don't really take away sin and they have to be repeated. And every time you sin, you have to get another animal to sacrifice as a covering for your sin. But now, the blood of Christ does take away sin, takes it away forever, takes away all the sin. Notice it says to purge your conscience from dead works. From dead works. And people argue about what this phrase means. But what it really means is corrupt, rotting works of your own doing. And you know, all of our works are corrupt and rotting, no matter how glorious we think they are, no matter how marvelous we think they are, no matter how important we think they are, no matter with what good purpose we do them. What does Isaiah say? For all our righteousness is but as filthy rags, a stench before God. And so you see, we have no real good works. All we have is dead works, corrupt works, works that cannot please God. Why does it say it purges our conscience from dead works? Because our consciences are condemned by our own dead works. Because we know that they're not really good enough. We try to deceive ourselves to make ourselves think that they are that somehow we're going to get by, that God's going to let us by because we were such good people. And heaven forbid that we should admit they were bad works because then our conscience is really condemned, isn't it? You can't have a clear conscience when you're counting on dead works. You can't have a clear conscience. You can't have a conscience that's purged from those works. They drag you down. They remain with you forever. Mocking your attempt to obey and to make yourself right with God. The blood of Christ purges our consciences from our sinful works, our rotten works, our works that cannot please God, and from our reliance upon our so-called good works for our rescue. You see, the purging of the conscience from dead works is not only that our consciences are set free from, set at liberty from, made clear about our horrible sins. But also, the blood of Christ purges us from the reliance upon what we think are good works. Your sin pollutes your conscience and Christ's blood purges your conscience of that pollution of your conscience but also your reliance on good works to please God and escape wrath upsets your conscience. And why is that? Because you know you can never be sure if they are enough. Everybody that talks about salvation by good works, when you start pinning them down, well, how many good works? How many bad works can you get away with? You have to be perfect. God says you have to be perfect, but I'm sure that you have a, a lower standard. But just what is the standard? What's the cutoff? How many good works do you need? If you do all kind of good works, let's say you always feed the starving animals. Okay, Let's say that's your set of good works. But sometimes when you run out of food, you might miss a few. Well, is, is that a flaw in your good works? Sounds like it. You can never know. And so even your good works that you're vainly trying to rely on to save yourself, those things will aggravate your conscience which is guilty in all men. Trying to rely on good deeds to please God and escape wrath will upset your conscience. You never know whether they are enough. And this is the problem with the poor Roman Catholic people. They can never be at peace with God. They must always work harder, do more rituals, fear more wrath. And heaven forbid they should be introspective and discover that all of their good works are unacceptable to God. And so therefore, they're going to have to always be going to confession and penance. And they're going to have to always be taking the Mass and hoping that they don't die outside the state of grace, or they'll go straight to hell. And then they have to fear more wrath anyway because of purgatory, even if they do manage to scrape by to make it to heaven one day. You see how reliance on your own works. That's something that the blood of Jesus can purge your conscience from. You can let go of that hopeless scheme that the devil cooked up and that underlies all false religions, you can overcome that by the blood of Jesus. He can purge by His blood your conscience from dead works. He does this by causing us to set the whole of our hope upon Jesus and His sacrifice as God's Lamb and take away our hope from ourselves. Nobody wants to let go of... The nail or the peg until they've got their hand firmly on something else. Do that. And so by understanding how Christ's blood that pays the price for our redemption before God, to understand how that purges the conscience from dead works, to understand how we can apply that to ourselves, we have to lay hold on the sacrifice so that we can let go of our own hopeless efforts to save ourselves by our own good works. He sung that song this morning. A debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing. Nor fear with God's righteousness on my person and offerings to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. Why? Why? because my Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view, And so when the blood of Jesus offered to God as the propitiation for your sin, when it's applied to you in your heart by believing faith, it purges your conscience from dead works. But note well the transformation that is wrought at the end of verse 14 purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice the, the contrast. Dead works, living God. You see, everything in us until we trust in Jesus is dead, dead, dead. Dying, dying, dying. Doomed, doomed, doomed. That's our position because of our sin, because of our crimes against God. But when Christ purges our conscience from dead works, then we are enabled to serve the living God. The living God. Dead works versus the living God. Having cleaned away our fear, our guilt, and our vain attempts to save ourselves. As long as you're approaching God under those terms, then you're lost. You're without hope. You're bound for eternal judgment. But having been purged in our conscience of those things, you see, now we can serve the living God. Why? Because that's the way we think we're going to get to heaven? No. That's what our consciences have been purged from to begin with. That false notion that we can earn our way to heaven, that we can please God by our own efforts. No. God is well pleased by His Son in our place. And so now we can serve the living God out of love for what He did for us, out of love for who He is, and not for our own self-interest and our own self-salvation. No longer are we trying to vindicate ourselves to God, which we cannot do. But rather, we are endeavoring to love and fear Him for saving us by the blood of His dear Son. You cannot serve the living God so long as your conscience has not been purged from dead works, that is sinful works, and even in the best possible angle of view, good works that you're doing because you think that it will save you. You see, believers will serve the living God. People whose consciences have been purged from dead works will serve the living God. But that flows as a result of Christ redeeming us, not the cause of our salvation. This is the sanctification which the Lord promises to those who put their trust in Christ, that we will serve the living God, not to save ourselves, but to rejoice in His work and His goodness to us. Our good works will not be the cause of our salvation. They will be the fruit of our salvation. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2. For by grace, that's the free gift of God, by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. And then what does it say? So we're saved by the grace of God. He gives us the faith to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. And salvation and faith is all of God's goodness to us and none of our own. And it's not of works because if it was, then people could brag about it. You see how Paul, as does the writer of Hebrews, purge the conscience from dead works to serve the living God, Paul also would purge the penitent sinner of any notion that his works in any way contribute to his salvation by the grace of God. But then it says this, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. So you see, this is the same as serving the living God. It answers to that. The Lord Jesus, having purged us by His bloodshedding of our dead works, now we can serve the living God. Now He works in us to renew us, to make us a new creation, and to work good things for the glory of God. And you see, it's Him working in us. It's not us working in ourselves. We're His workmanship. We're His work product, to use modern language. And we've been recreated new creatures for that very purpose. And God intended it to happen that way before we ever believed we were created unto good works in Christ Jesus, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. It was His plan that our salvation should proceed to good works unto the glory of God. Notice in Hebrews 9, 11-14, the text that we just went through, how it tracks the promises of the new covenant. You remember? The law would be in the heart. Everybody will know the Lord who's been redeemed. He will be our God. Here we're going to serve the living God. We're going to know the Lord. We're going to know His law. We're going to serve the living God, not with dead works. But then He will have mercy on our unrighteousness and remember our sins no more. All of these promises are worked out in Hebrews 9, 11-14. But notice that they're all executed by the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ who is our great priest. And we will talk more about this at a later time. Jesus told us this during His earthly ministry. You remember the passage we read this morning, Matthew 20, was one of the instances where Christ told His people that He was going to be taken betrayed into the hands of wicked men by His own rulers, by His own people, handed over to the Romans and treated cruelly and put to death. And you remember in another place, Peter, he rebuked Christ and said, not so. Christ rebuked him. Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense to me because you savor or you favor or you embrace the things that be of man and not the things that be of God. It is one of God's highly treasured things that Jesus should be put to death by wicked men as a sacrifice to save his loved ones. And so here's another place in Matthew 20 where he tells his people that. And then they get into a squabble over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, as if they didn't even notice that Christ has already said that he's about to go to be put to death. And then Jesus gives a little explanation of what it is that He's going to accomplish when He's put to death. Jesus called them unto Him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. That's His rebuke of their squabbling and grasping over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. You want to be the greatest, be the servant of the Lord's people. Minister to the Lord's people. But then he says this in verse 8, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Give his life a payment to rescue, to set free for many people. Notice the condescension of Christ. He is the Son of God. He is deity. He made all the world. He has all the right to rule with a rod of iron. And one day He will, but He comes His first time into this world to minister to His poor people unto their everlasting salvation. He gave His life a ransom for many. He paid the price by his giving it, by his dying for our redemption. Hebrews 9 explains more completely how that was to be. No wonder we are so comforted by our God's oath to Christ that he will be our perfect priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For it explains how it is that Jesus performed what was promised in Hebrews chapter 1. You remember how the book of Hebrews begins. It says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spoke to us by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. No doubt people who start reading Hebrews puzzle how how, how does Christ purge our sins? By Himself. How how is it this is in the past? And some of us weren't born until yesterday. How can it be said that Christ, who made all the world, came into this world and by Himself purged our sins and then sat down at the right hand? How can that be? You see, it is just what the writer explains in chapter 9. He's a better priest. He has a better covenant with better promises. He's got a better tabernacle. And in that better tabernacle, he offers the perfect atonement for the sin of his people by which he obtains our redemption from the judgment of God and wrath. And he purges our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. And this ought to encourage us and comfort us that the oath that God made to Christ to make Him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek leads us inexorably to this offering of Christ's blood by which He purges our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. And it reminded me of the words of that hymn that we love to sing, I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered, from the curse to set me free. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save in His boundless love and mercy He the ransom freely gave. I will praise my dear Redeemer, His triumphant power I'll tell, how the victory He giveth o'er the sin and death and hell. I will sing of my Redeemer and His heavenly love to me. He from death to life hath brought me Son of God, with Him to be. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. With His blood He purchased me. On the cross He sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. And at the Lord's table we celebrate how our Lord Jesus redeemed us. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant, shed for many, for the remission of sin. There it is again even more clearly than the text where he says he gave his life a ransom for many. Here it is finally the night before he was betrayed and hung upon Calvary's tree. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. Think of how foreboding and alarming and tragic those words must have been to the disciples. They could not comprehend the gospel message in its fullness before the Lord Jesus rose again from the dead. You remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus said, but we thought that it was to be Him who would redeem Israel. All the time He was going about redeeming His people, not only of Israel, but from all the world, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, black and white. It doesn't matter. Lord Jesus has saved a host of people from all over the world by laying down His life and shedding His blood for the remission of our sin, to take away our sin, to purchase our redemption from the cruel justice of the law and of God. And that's what we celebrate at this Lord's table. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for... What it stands for, a picture to remind us of the means by which the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, purchased our redemption and set us free to serve God. Let's pray first for the bread that pictures the body of the Lord Jesus. O God, our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son and in the sacrifice He made and in the divine conception of the plan of redemption that's from before the foundation of the world and that You have delivered up Your Son as Your Lamb to take the place of sinners, and that He delivered up Himself, and He sacrificed Himself as our High Priest and brought that blood before You in the heavenly tabernacle, purchased our redemption, gained the forgiveness of our sin, purged our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. We thank You that He left us this bread to, Remind us of all that our life for all eternity hangs on is the body of Christ made a sacrifice for the sin of His people that we might be set free. Bless us as we partake of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me say this, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus, if you have not deserted your own attempt to save yourself, if you have not laid hold on the sacrifice as your only hope, that this remembrance is not for you. You dare not partake of it. Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask my Father if He'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. For the remission of sin, do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's go ahead and sing that song, page 488 in the Big Blue Book, I Will Sing of My Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse to set me free. Number 488.